0: We're now gonna move into the case-based discussions that will be led by a colleague of mine from UCSD, Chuck Hicks. Uh, Chuck um, had an illustrious career in the US Army as an Army physician and then uh, moved to Duke where he um, was present for almost two decades uh, before uh, coming to the University of California, San Diego to succeed um, uh, Chris Matthews as the director of the Owen Clinic. Uh, Chuck has had a, a catalyzing effect on the Owen Clinic, uh, has managed to actually get the hospital to uh, invest uh, in refurbishing it, which is an incredible uh, um, accomplishment given the way our hospital operates. So I'm going to ask him to advocate for more things for us, perhaps a, even a larger wall or something if Trump gets elected. But we're, we're delighted to have Chuck come join us from Duke uh, and uh, to bring with him his certificate at birth of uh, gender at birth, which he's happy to share with you at lunch today. So with no more ado, uh, Chuck, welcome. He's going to introduce to you the panelists who will be... Uh, Uh, participating with him in this case-based discussion. Chuck, thank you.
1: Thank thank you, Chip. Um, One thing I've learned at UCSD is that you're never sure what Chip is going to say about you, and there's a high likelihood you'll be blushing as part of it. Um, This, uh, as Chip said, I I, uh, have been at UCSD for just over two years now after being at Duke for a very long time, but I actually was a resident here in San Francisco, giving away my age here between 79 and 82, which as I'm sure almost all of you in the room, if not all of you in the room know, is when the HIV epidemic first was clinically recognized. And so it's, uh, it's an extraordinary thing to come back here. And it's also interesting how my kids have sort of cycled back here. My oldest child uh, and his wife live in the Mission. He works at San Francisco General. He uh, does information technology stuff. My middle child uh, got his PhD at UCSF and was in that very first Mission Bay building, but now when I come here, I can't even find that building anymore because of the amount of construction that's gone on. And only my daughter hasn't seen the light and spent any meaningful time in San Francisco, although she and her husband are here this weekend and we're all gonna go and have a a fun weekend here in the Bay Area. Um, This part should be quite enjoyable, I hope. It's a series of cases that have Lessons within them, but really also uh, represent the range of different things that occur in the process of doing patient care management. And I was really happy to see what a high proportion of people in the audience are uh, directly involved in HIV patient care. And I'll be really interested in how the audience response system uh, seems to show uh, the different varieties of opinions about things, because I do think often there are many ways to get to a good response and not everyone has to go down through the same path. So I think we'll have a a great discussion. I'm gonna ask the panel to introduce themselves, say who they are, where they work, and just perhaps a sentence or two, and I'll start with my great friend, Joe Erant from
2: UNC. Hi, I'm Joe Erant from UNC. (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm a clinician and clinician investigator and have been working in HIV for 25 years or so.
3: I'm Gary Green. I'm the chief of ID at Santa Rosa Kaiser and the clinical director of our HIV clinic, and I'm representing the dark side.
4: Good morning. I'm Joe Bick. I'm an a infectious disease physician working in corrections. I've been at a California medical facility up the road in Vacaville for about 23 years, and the last four or five years been uh, working also in prisons in <clears throat> excuse me, Malaysia and Myanmar.
5: My name is Jess Volder. I'm a family physician and HIV provider. Uh, I worked at the HIV warm line for about 14 years, and I'm currently uh, working at Santa Rita Jail as the HIV provider. Um, and I feel very rusty, but I was told I'm up here to uh, provide some gender balance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and blame Donna if you want to blame
1: someone for that slightly non-PC <laughs> I'm
6: Eric Dahr from Harper, UCLA. I'm a clinician investigator and work at one of the safety net hospitals in LA County.
1: Great. What a wonderful group. And I, I especially want to thank Jess, Joe, and, and Gary for being willing to do this without any advance notice. Donna just went kind of shamed them into doing it during the most recent break. So uh, th- and, and I'm, my uh, <coughs> style in this is not to do a gotcha, but to really try and hopefully have cases that are interesting and, and, and illustrate some good points. So. Uh, This is my these are my uh, my graft and my illegal activities and so on here. Um, Here's our learning objectives Uh, we'll go through them and during the course of the uh, discussions I won't uh, dwell on them right now. Um, Some of this has already been discussed in this morning's presentations Uh, if you go back to the earliest time here. Uh, 96, 97, you remember 1996, the meeting in Vancouver, the first announcement of outcomes with three drug combination therapies. If you remember, ritonavir 600 milligrams twice a day, and indinavir taken every uh, eight hours on an empty stomach. Appreciate how hard it was for people to be successful. And now with the improvements in antiretroviral therapy, extraordinarily higher rates of virologic success in our clinics. And as a consequence of that, the death rate from HIV has dropped dramatically. These are Kaiser data, and the outcomes difference for a 20-year-old now, expectation to live uh, additional 53 years, and the number can get smaller if some other modifiable risk factors change. But, you know, really 53 years, we haven't really had 53 years elapse since we've brought people into care. So this is a model and an estimate. And I think if we are to achieve these kinds of goals, we need to know how to manage patients well. We need to do it well. And I think we're learning new things. Certainly at our clinic at UCSD, uh, we do have a lot of older patients. We have almost 100 patients in their 70s. And that whole idea of how do you manage geriatric medicine, relearning a lot of internal medicine, I think is really important. And we'll explore that a little bit as we go through. And so let's start with case number one. Uh, This is a 58-year-old man. Uh, He is newly diagnosed with HIV. He's been followed in an internal medicine practice. And to the credit of his practice, they actually read the CDC 2006 testing guidelines and uh, decided this gentleman has not been tested, needed to be tested. He was followed for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and he has type 2 diabetes. Two years ago, he developed chest pain, was hospitalized, and had a myocardial infarction. So he has known coronary artery disease. And and he says, I'm pretty good about taking pills. I've been on a bunch of pills since I had my heart attack. Metformin, glipizide, aspirin, metoprolol, and atorvastatin. He stopped smoking two years ago after his MI, and he's been able to stay off uh, cigarettes. He also uses no illicit substances. He drinks a beer or two a day by his uh, acknowledgement. So this is a guy with HIV who has a lot of other stuff going on. And in the beginning when we were doing this, there was young men really often with no other meaningful problems, although they got opportunistic infections, developed other comorbidities. But now as our patients get older, you can see that the proportion of them with uh, comorbidities is higher and higher. These are a Medicare population. This is the Medicaid population but I think it's more and more true that the patients we follow in our practices have these other conditions. And when I was at Duke for actually slightly more than two decades, uh, we were mostly a specialty clinic. We provided HIV care, but we didn't really manage too many of the patients as primary care physicians, and now we're a primary care clinic that specializes in HIV. But I've had to really try to Relearned some of these internal medicine skills that had kind of fallen out of my, my feeble brain So here's the lab studies. This guy's now referred to your practice. His cd4 count is okay 363 his viral loads about 40,000 a genotype returns. He has k103n, which is the most common transmitted resistance in the US his uh, screen for Abacavir hypersensitivity syndrome HLA B5701 assay is negative. His creatinine. he had, remember he has hypertension. He's 58 and uh, diabetes. His creatinine is 2.1, and his the lab report says that by Cockcroft-Gault his eGFR is around 30, just under 30. He has liver looks fine. His uh, Hep B surface antibody positive, Hep C negative. His A1c is 7.2, so not optimal. His last LDL was 105. And after discussing things with you, looking online, talking to other people, he's really interested in starting antiretroviral therapy. So here's our first question. We'll kind of think about antiretroviral therapy. I know we take most people and put them on one pill, but the composition of the pill differs depending on which one you choose. So let's think about the nucleoside component. And down here at the bottom are kind of the relevant summary information about our patients. So thinking about the regimen you're going to start them on, which antiretroviral nucleoside combination, assuming we want to use two nucleosides and a third drug, which is kind of our standard, would you recommend? Is it abacavir, lamivudine, tenofovir, dispovoxil fumarate, or the new version of tenofovir, alafenamide, and emtricitabine. Or I don't like the tenofovirs or abacavir. I'm just going to use the cytosine drug, either lamivudine or ntricitabine. Or I don't like nukes at all. I want the nuke sparing option, or six is unsure. So uh, let's vote. I purposely read through that, because I thought if you only have 10 seconds, you won't even be able to have any time to think about it. So everyone's voted, let's see what we have here. So uh, a nice uh, difference of opinion, which I think is uh, is actually reflective of the certainty or uncertainty of what we're doing. So Eric, you're nodding, and so I'm gonna pick on you because your head was bouncing up and down. What, what do you think of these responses?
6: Yeah, so I mean, I agree that you know this is a tough case, and there's probably no one right answer. I mean, there's a few little subtleties, of course, that strictly speaking you couldn't use a back of as a fixed dose combination because you need to dose adjust the lamivudine, um, and you'd need to dose adjust tenofovir emtricitabine if you were going to use it. And I wouldn't use it in somebody like this. Um, and then the tenofir aliphenamide is approved to uh, 30 and above, so it's 29. So, again, there's little issues you need to quibble over. But to me, the big question is, do you feel comfortable using TAF based on the data that's available, um, or do you feel comfortable using a abacavir in somebody with cardiovascular risk factors acknowledging that the data is conflicting? I sit on the fence in all of these categories, and I worry about abacavir, and if I have alternatives, I prefer not to use it in people with lots of cardiovascular risk factors or known disease acknowledging that I don't completely know the right answer. And the TAF, I still, I think the data is somewhat limited. The follow-up is short, and I'm not really committed to it in the the 30 to 50 mil per minute group if I have options. So I really am thinking more along the lines of a boosted PI with lamividine, or a boosted PI with an integrase inhibitor. We have the neat study that used darunavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, and in people with lower viral loads and higher T cells like this, they did very well. That's a good option. And I, you know, I've used a lot of darunavir, ritonavir, lamivudine in the absence of much data with that particular combination in naive patients. And that's probably what I would end up using in this patient. But I, I do think that three, four, and five, I would feel,
1: you know, are all viable options. You feel like you could use all of them, but all of them make you anxious in one way or another. Yeah,
6: probably the one I, I have the greatest comfort level with is going to be a boosted PI with either lamivudine or an integrase inhibitor.
1: Okay. Jess, do you want to
5: add to that? Um, I, I don't think there's much to add, because you did a great job of summarizing did a lot say of the data lot, there. That it? was awesome. Have to keep I, I will mind. say this, that with a, a GFR of 29, I'm not actually that worried about dosing the abacavir lamivudine, and I think that in discussions with pharmacists who know a lot more about this than I do, that lamivudine and abacavir aren't that toxic drugs, so even if you get slightly higher levels in people who have renal clearance issues, it doesn't generally cause problems, so that's not a huge concern for me.
1: Um, I feel the same way. I, I think the therapeutic margin for lamivudine and emtricitabine is really, really high, and if it's important to use a fixed-dose combination, I don't get too anxious about it. And then the only
5: other thing is I feel like um, that as far as the cardiovascular risk with abacavir, I mean conflicting data or maybe it's sort of disproved. I'm not as worried about that as the known toxicity of tenofovir. And yes, alafenamide looks better, but it's so new. Um, I would be sort of wrestling with that. Um, Today, I would probably choose the alafenomide just because I'm getting more comfortable with it. But I think maybe six months ago, I probably would have just gone with the abacavir saying, yeah, I don't know if it's going to increase the risk, but tenofovir is such a known entity as far as renal dysfunction. I probably would avoid that.
1: Yeah, I like it. I think we've hit a lot of the topics. Let's go on to the next question. In this particular patient, this is not like, well, this person might be at risk for coronary artery disease. This is a patient who's had a myocardial infarction. So we know he has coronary artery disease, and he still has diabetes. It's not well controlled. He has hypertension. He has renal insufficiency. A lot of cardiac things adding up here. Does the history of the cardiac problem, especially having had an infarction, prevent you from using a abacavir in this patient? Let's vote. Hamilton can vote to. I'm not moving my head. <laughs> All right, let's see what the answers look like. So, 51 uh, percent, about half of the people. This is like perfect, right? Half of the people say I wouldn't use a back fear in this patient, uh, and the other, the rest of them are split between. It would be okay, or I'm not sure. Joe, do you want to comment on this
2: one? Yeah, I think Eric's already um, and Jess. Have, oh, we got two Joes. So no, no, no. I'll go really fast. Um, yes, I would be uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, short answer. I I I think the data are conflicting, but if it's anywhere, it's in these people with the highest risk, and and I think there are multiple other alternatives that that Eric and Jess both walk through, and and um, I, I I don't I don't see why you would expose him to any even potential risk. Others want to comment?
3: I Harry? think the data is conflicting, and I, wouldn't be uncomfort- I would not be uncomfortable using a back of here. I think when this patient comes in the door, he's going to be really nervous. And as an ID doctor, the first thing we want to jump into is talk about antiretroviral therapy. I would probably leverage his HIV anxiety with his diabetes noncompliance. And I would say to this patient, the most dangerous thing in your life right now is not about this HIV. It's really about the diabetes and then the coronary disease. What's interesting about this case is that with a CD4 percentage of 20%, he's probably had HIV for a while. How much of that has really contributed to his coronary disease to start with? We kind of don't know that, and that's kind of somewhat of an academic thing. But I think the dad study got a lot of sort of you know, early press, and then, like Eric said, it's very conflicting. It's not really, we, don't, we didn't really understand the abacavir association with coronary disease when the dad study came out. It wasn't designed for that, and afterwards we couldn't really replicate it. So I think the jury's a little bit out on that, and with a viral load of only 39,000, you know, um, I wouldn't be uncomfortable with the abacabra thing. I'm much more worried about his renal function because his renal dysfunction with his coronary disease and the the uncontrolled diabetes really puts this guy at tremendous risk of death from a stroke or a heart attack. Yeah, and we've
1: got, uh, you know, obviously engineered by me, but we have a GFR of 29, which is right at or just below the cutoff for what the FDA approved for the tenofovir alafenamide. So let's let's go on. I like that. show without describing the number of studies that have tried to address the issue of abacavir and increased cardiac risk. These are the ones for which the abacavir cardiovascular effect was identified in the study, and these are the ones where the cardiovascular risk was not seen. The numbers of patients are substantial, and I think this reflects. The uncertainty of this particular issue, and I think our, our two highly experienced, superb clinicians kind of covered both sides of the question. And I don't know that we actually have a right answer. If if there is a risk, if there is a risk, and and I kind of fall on the side that there probably is, in terms of the the absolute risk—that is, how many patients like this would be given potentially a bacavir—and the as a result of being on Bacavir would have another myocardial infarction, I think it would be extraordinarily infrequent event. But it would be more than if they didn't have a Bacavir. So if if the other reasons why you're inclined towards a Bacavir are compelling, I don't think that the absolute risk of a Bacavir causing another MI is so great that it would take away all the other factors. But So the next question flips the coin over to the other side of the toxicity issue. Are you comfortable using tenofovir alafenamide in this patient with a GFR of 29? Mm -hmm. ( imagined) If you haven't voted, please (presented) do. All right. So again, we have some difference of opinion. This is good. So about half of the people say, no, it's fine. They've swallowed the Gilead Kool-Aid. <laughs> the answer to everything. About a quarter uh, say, eh, this is pushing it. If you actually look at the number of patients that have received tenofovir with a creatinine, clearance less than 50, it's pretty small number, and then a quarter are, I think, reasonably unsure. So let's go to the other Joe. Would you comment, how do you feel about TAF in a patient with a, a Cockcroft-Galt one-time value so far, GFR of 29?
4: Well, in this patient who has hypertension and diabetes, and, and I've just met him and I don't really know uh, so much about him, I, I'm not comfortable. I mean. I'm also uncomfortable with the back of ear, but um, I think at this point, I would not yet be comfortable using either TAF or TDF. Um, I think it's likely that he would probably do okay if he were a highly experienced patient with resistant uh, mutations, and it was the only choice. I'd have a informed discussion with him and and we would move forward uh, but you know, I, I would be a little uncomfortable And with the abacavir. You know, I, we really haven't talked too much about the other modifiable risk factors this man has. I don't recall if you mentioned if he's a smoker or if he's he obese. He stopped
1: smoking <clears throat> when he had his MI two years ago, and he's two years been able ago. To stay off cigarettes.
4: So there might be some things there that we can do as far as obesity and other things to lower his risk if we were going to go in the direction of abacavir. But, uh, like Gary said, I think with his. Um, uh, being treatment-naive and with a relatively benign resistance assay and his low viral load, I think we have a lot of options that are going to work for him.
6: So, yeah, so the one, you know, I think that the 29 is cute, but it's probably not the most important issue about TAF, and that meaning it's approved for 30 and above. I think the question I would ask is, even if it was 30 to 50, how comfortable do I feel? And I think it's important to remind everybody that, they, that Gilead got the indication for down to 30 based on a single arm study in a subset of patients who presumably were pretty stable with creatinine clearances between 30 and 70 who were given it and shown that there was no progression over a finite (coughs) period of time. And so there was no control group here. We don't know that these people wouldn't have continued to do well with TDF. And the TAF safety profile, while promising, TDF looked pretty good in the early randomized trials as well. It was only the long-term follow-up and cohort studies where it became increasingly clear. So I'm still a little anxious in people with low renal functions and lots of other you know, concerns for nephrotoxicity and things to, to use this drug. Yeah,
1: me too. And this is sort of the, what you were alluding to. Small sample, look pretty good. There was a study where there was a switch, and actually the TDF GFR went up a little bit. So I think in one year's follow-up in a small number of patients, you have to, at the minimum, remain cautious. And I would probably follow this guy much more closely than I might somebody who had a GFR of 100.
2: Can I just make a quick comment, uh-huh. which is yeah. uh, it really is all about the trajectory, right, of this creatinine clearance? Because if his... If he's got a rising creatinine and he's a diabetic and his creatinine's doubled in the last year, I mean, he's, his diabetologist is talking to him about dialysis, right? Because this is, I mean, that's the internal medicine part of us, right? On the other hand, if when he had his MI, he had, you know, some ATN and his creatinine's been 2.0 for the last five years, that's a different, entirely different story. So, so, to, so the one point in time, I think, is really, it's a really That's a really good point. Really good point. Okay, now
1: we picked or not picked, as the case may be, our nucleoside component. What other agents would you add to this? And uh, your options are boosted PI and integrase transfer inhibitor, both, other or unsure? So let's vote. By the way, Kristen picked the music, so like it, just give her a pat on the back at the break. Okay, so uh, again, we have a nice distribution of responses. Uh, uh, About 40% like the integrase inhibitor, about 1 in 11 like the boosted PI. Uh, 39% would use both, and then the smattering of persons would use other or unsure. Jess, what do you think? What would you use? Sorry, I don't Spot. That's fine.
5: Uh, well, I, you know, in a situation like this, I would probably crack open my guidelines and remind myself of the renal toxicities of some of the integrase inhibitors, including possibly dolutegravir all on its own, or l with a stat. so that makes me nervous. Uh, the boosted PI is much more of a known entity, and um, in that regard, um, I think if I'm remembering correctly, RAL, uh, raltegravir does not have renal toxicity, but I would have to call someone or look it up, like ask this guy, maybe. You're good to go. I'm all right, <laughs> okay.
1: Gary, what, what, what would you have added here for the third drug?
3: Um, I would have used an integrase, I would have used sobrotegravir as well. Um, Do you feel the need to give a boosted PI as well, or? No, I would be a little bit nervous of that just because of the, the side effect profile. I mean, this guy's dealing with a lot with the diabetes that's not under great control. He's trying to be compliant with his MI and his coronary disease risk. He's got a lot of pills already. You know, he does not need more side effects on top of what he has. Uh, and then, you know, you always worry about the cholesterol bumps. And I'd be more worried about his diabetes issue with the cholesterol issues than really the cornea.
1: His viral load was 40,000, and uh, so I probably would go with the integrase myself. Let's take so a look. Chuck, what here.
2: are you doing? Yep. You're giving a 3TC, Raltegravir? I didn't say that. What, so, integrase plus what?
1: Uh, I, well,
2: let's look at what <laughs> our options
1: are. So there, hard case. there are some, uh, We we'll would go through this again, there, there are some uh, newer approaches, and I won't steal thunder from Dr. Iran, who's going to give an extraordinary great talk <laughs> on antiretroviral agents after lunch, you know. but uh, a study that's been intriguing and has led to some additional work being done, and is the Paddle study, was out of Argentina, Pedro Khan, and his group looked at dolutegravir with only lamivudine. And lamivudine is a particularly attractive option here because it's generic. And when both the generic and the trade drug are made by the same company, it's a lot easier to formulate a single capsule or a tablet. And so in this study, 20 patients, non-randomized, non-controlled, were given dolutegravir and 3TC. As it turned out, uh, four of them, even though their viral load had to be less than 100,000 during screening when they actually entered, four of them had viral load over 100,000. And as you see here, uh, they all were successful. Now this is 20 motivated patients. We can't make too much of this. But in someone where abacavir and tenofovir are both sort of make us unhappy, uh, perhaps non-nuke or or a 3TC, FTC-only new combinations in a very adherent patient might be a good idea. Now, we also will always have to worry about drug-drug interactions. And if we like dolutegravir, we have to be aware. And I sort of always try to look up when people are on a bunch of meds through Hippocrates or some other source, what are the drug-drug interactions? Mm-hmm. Dolutegravir and metformin, there's about a doubling of the exposure to metformin which recommended the dose be reduced and then titrated to effect. Our guys got a little extra glucose. Metformin doesn't cause hypoglycemia, so you don't get quite as anxious, but may need a dose adjustment. And finally, a recent paper in uh, Clinical Infectious Diseases projected some cost savings if dolutegravir and generic 3TC became a popular regimen. Uh, There were three strategies. One is starting with dolutegravir, 3TC. The second was starting with a more uh, harder, more intense regimen, three-drug regimen. And then when they get suppressed, switching them to dolutegravir and 3TC. And the third was standard of care. And uh, with a, whoops, let me go back here. With a 50% uh, uptake of either of the other two strategies, we'd save about $550 to $800 million. Now, we don't think so much about cost, but but all our regimens now, the average wholesale price is above $30,000. We have a clinic of 3,300 patients at UCSD. Uh, If they're all on therapy, and most of them all, our our one-year bill is $90 million, $90 million. And as more and more patients come into care, people live longer. How much longer are we going to be able to keep our heads in the sand about costs? So, this may also begin to be a driver of
3: our choices.
1: Okay, let's go on to case two.
3: Question before <laughs> yeah, we go on? Please. I'd ask um, my colleagues what do you think about a two drug regimen's durability, especially with 3TC with a low viral, bar- with a low genetic barrier? I mean, I think for
6: when you talk about you take three TC. I mean, there's huge limitations, right? It's 20 patients, lowish viral loads, despite a few that ended up over 100,000. I just don't think we have enough data that I would consider even that as a possibility. I think if you're going to use a, a Bacavir, tenofir sparing regimen in the current era, based on data, it's going to either be a boosted PI with a cytosine analog or a boosted PI with an integrase inhibitor. And that's, that's probably what I would have ended up doing with that patient, acknowledging that anybody who wanted to use a Bacavir, you know, based on the conflicting data, it's not an unreasonable thing to do.
3: Would you ever use maraviroc in an original regimen like that when you're kind of limited with options? Would you ever throw it in? As a, as a third? If you're going to build a regimen and you need a third agent? Yeah, so
6: I presented the study in the context of the neuro con- study, but a boosted PI with the maraviroc and FTC was shown to be effective, but I wouldn't use it. It's more complicated, and I think the data with boosted PIs and cytosine analogs at least looks promising. Uh, both for um, maintenance as well as for in, in, induction therapy. So that's what I would do.
5: Cool. Can I ask a question? What about duet? Is it out? No more for uh, the the duet study that was uh, darunavir plus.
6: So that was for treatment-experienced patients. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of data with uh, boosted PI and like oh. etravirine. Um, it probably would work. We just don't have a lot of data. Yeah,
1: we're kind of in a data-free zone. Yeah. And in the interest of time, because I want to get to a couple of the cases, I'll just uh, kind of shut this off early. It's a great discussion. I think it's a really interesting patient. raises a lot of issues. And increasingly, a p- kind of patient that we're seeing in clinics. So case two is also someone we see in our clinical practice as well. So 40-year-old woman. And uh, you get a call from the emergency department that she's back. She's been in the hospital several times. Uh, now she has fever, malaise, generalized weakness, and has lost 15 pounds since the last time she was in the ED six months ago. She has a diminished level of consciousness, diminished arousability. And when you get her to concentrate, she said uh, she has a, she's had a terrible uh, headache. She's known HIV infected, she's never followed up, um, is homeless and has uh, not previously engaged in HIV care despite a number of attempts to do so. Never been on antiretroviral therapy. Uh, When seen last in the the ED, her CD4 count was 33 and her HIV RNA was 130,000. A CT is done because of the fever and headache and altered consciousness and shows uh, evidence of increased intracranial pressure, no mass lesion. So an LP is performed. Uh, she has an increased opening pressure and three mononuclear cells. But her India ink is positive, and her cryptococcal antigen assay is also positive. Mm-hmm. So we're really worried. She's a very sick lady. She has um, uh, cryptococcal meningitis and uh, her immune system is shot, and we're thinking, boy, we've got to get this lady back on the road to recovery or she's done for. So let's uh, decide what we want to do with antiretroviral therapy, since we now believe all patients should be on antiretroviral therapy. What would you do? I'd start a boosted PI regimen now, or I'd start an uh, integrase-based regimen now. I'd start a combination of PI and integrase, I'd start a boosted PI, but only after her cryptococcal meningitis is improved. I'd start an integrase inhibitor-based regimen after her uh, meningitis improved, or I'm not really sure. So let's all vote.
5: Born a poor young country boy. Mother Nature, son.
1: Okay, again, we have a a kind of a spread of of choices. The most common response was starting a boosted PI regimen after the cryptococcal meningitis is improved. And in fact, it it looks like about 60 percent, if I'm reading those numbers right, uh, would wait for improvement and then start either an integrase or a boosted uh, PI regimen. And then another 20 percent or so would start the combination of both of them. So uh, Eric, what, what do you think about this case?
6: Yeah, unfortunately, we encounter these patients with some frequency yeah. in our environment. Yep. And, um, you know, the, the guidelines are kind of mixed. The studies are a little mixed. This is the one setting, at least in, in resource-limited settings, where early antiretroviral therapy has, for the most part, been associated with bad outcomes. Um, It's conflicting with the domestic study that was done, which had a relatively small number of people with cryptomeningitis, where early therapy looked to be equivalent to deferred or maybe even favoring it a little bit. We've had so much experience in managing these people and with iris, which occurs in upwards of a third of these people, that I just, I wait. And uh, I don't know how long to wait, so I arbitrarily use the four to six week number is when I start to think about starting antiretroviral therapy.
1: And, and the nature of the problem that cryptococcal meningitis introduces that would cause you to defer starting therapy is? Well, it's just that
6: iris is so common. Yeah. And although I can't say for sure it's gonna be less common at four to six weeks than it is at two weeks, at least I have a better sense as to where the person is clinically. I know they've responded. I know their headache's better. I know their cultures are negative. And at least I feel like I'm starting in a better place to be able to recognize when they get in
1: trouble with therapy, where earlier on, there's so much going on, it's and, just and difficult if, to sort if start they out. do have a, a immune response inflammatory syndrome event, if they have basilar meningitis, it interferes with the CSF flow, they can get dangerously increased intracranial pressure. And so the recommendations from the most recent update in December 15th by the DHHS guidelines panel for opportunistic infections does note that um, for cryptococcal meningitis, while the others are many start, start within, start within, this one says delay starting antiretroviral therapy until after antifungal induction, so at least two weeks, or uh, perhaps depending on how the patient's doing, whether there's any time to wait after induction consolidation, and especially as in this case, When there's increased intracranial pressure or the number of white cells, a a failure of the inflammatory response to the infection is identified.
6: Although they also, I think, says, and some experts would start within two weeks, especially if the person is profoundly immunosuppressed, which they all are. Right. So it could not be more (laughs) wishy-washy.
1: Yeah, but I took the wash out of it and just put the wish. (laughs) (laughs) All right,
2: let's go to case number three. Chuck, one more thing. This is the one group of patients where Boosted PIs have done classically worse. Uh, you know, I mean, there are multiple studies where boosted PIs are less good and people sick with, and yet we've constantly hit the boosted PI button for, for these patients. I, I honestly don't understand it. Um, why, why do you think that's so? I, I, I don't know, honestly. I, I think it totally conflicts. I mean, most of the, almost all the data are with Khalitra, but we don't have any other data with any other boosted PI in this population. Um, and they were, it was clearly substantially worse than a favorance based therapy. Favirance.
5: But, but we, were, we were not even considering that here.
2: Right. Well, I, I think you know, if you wanted to be data driven, that would, might be your best choice. So I think we've got plenty of data suggesting that integrase inhibitors are at least as good, if not, not better, than a favorance. But, but your, your point's very well taken. Anyway, okay. you can go on, but
1: yep. just... Uh, I, the I, moderator's prerogative trying to get through our cases yep. here. Oh, but- Case three, uh, it's a 54-year-old man who you've been following for a while. He's been doing really well, but he, he has some new friends now, and they're like, why are you taking all those pills? And he's read the, all the ads that come from the one-pill-a-day folks and the detailing, and, and so uh, he's new to your clinic. He uh, moved here from Cincinnati and he has long-standing HIV infection and comes in on tenofovir uh, FTC plus darunavir ritonavir with a decent CD4 count, uh, 323, and a viral load that's less than 20. He has a little bit of <coughs> lipoatrophy, but otherwise his exam's OK. Over the years, he's kind of had a nomadic life existence, been treated in a bunch of different clinics. He's come to San Francisco about six months ago and he has no records he can't even remember the name of some of the doctors that took care of him but he's now like I why do I have to take 3 pills a day I want to be on one pill a day and you say okay well can you re- tell me what you've been on he goes well I've been on everything you you know this guy right so then you show him the picture of the pills and he says yeah I've been on this one I've been on that one you know and you kind of throw your hands up and say he's he's extensively antiretroviral therapy experienced." So you say, well, when you were taking them, or did things go okay? He said, well, I didn't really take it all that seriously. But three years ago, I got that pneumonia and was in the hospital. And since then, I've been really good about taking the medicines. He said, I've been perfect. And my viral load's been undetectable. But now I'm sick of these three pills is too many. Uh, Plus, I have to take this pill for high blood pressure, and my cholesterol is too high, and so I am think like five pills, it's like half of my caloric intake. (laughs) So he wants to get down to one. So he's, uh, you know, what would you, what do you want (coughs) to do for him? So I'm going to read these so you can think about them a little bit, and then I want to push the vote button. I'd ask him, you know, listen, you've got to do better than that. Go get your old records, because I can't treat you without that. Or I'd put them on L-vitegravir, Cobacistat, FTC, and tenofovir alafenamide single pill. Or dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC single pill. Or Rilpivirine, tenofovir, FTC single pill. Or I would say, you know what? What you're on mm-hmm. in the not-too-distant future, if you just be a little patient, is likely to be a one-pill combination. So why don't you just cool your jets for a while? I would discourage him from switching. i say, are you crazy? You're finally doing it right. Your viral load's suppressed. Or I would order an archive DNA HIV resistance test. So let's vote. When I see
6: face, not a thing I change,
1: OK, let's see what we got. All right, so Monogram has succeeded. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So the most popular uh, answer, and may absolutely be the right answer, is the archived DNA test. Uh, The second most popular answer is, uh, I want you to wait. This will be a one-pill thing. Just be patient. And I agree there's a lot of caution here. Uh, So the other switches make people anxious. Here's why we switch. These are the reasons that are given. There's a lot of pressure to switch, comes from patients, comes from companies. Uh, I won't go into my diatribe about switching, but there are things that you need to do to make a safe and proper switch, and uh, that includes trying to find out what resistance may be present in a patient whose virus is now suppressed. And included on that in the guidelines is this consider use of archived DNA testing as part of the data you want to gather prior to making a decision about the switch. All right, so now you uh, think about using this. How many of you have already ordered at least one? It says, have you ever used archived DNA HIV resistance testing in your practice? So let's vote.
5: If I die young, bury me inside. Lay me down see how much experience on bed of we have with roses the. Sink me test. in the river.
1: Okay, let's see what we got. So, about a third, yes. About a quarter say, I would if I could, but they won't pay for it. And uh, slightly under half have not used it. And so, we're go- part of, a big part of this particular case is going to be what is, how does this work, and is this something that provides us value, and how do we interpret it in the way that makes the most sense? Okay. All right, so quick review. If you see a patient, a brand new patient, a patient with failing uh, virus load, has a viral load of 20,000 on therapy, you order the regular RNA resistance test. and And it's a regular blood tube. They take the plasma, and they look at the virus that's circulating in the plasma. And that's what's assayed with the RNA resistance test. So plasma HIV virions. In a patient with no detectable plasma HIV virions, the only genetic information that's readily available to sample is the cell-associated virus that has been incorporated into some of the peripheral blood mononuclear cells and now we're going to try and extract that previously incorporated information and see what it can tell us about resistance in that patient. So now we're going to take we, we need to get cells. So the first thing is it's a whole blood sample that needs some processing before you can send it in. You can't just draw a plasma tube and send it in. You'll, it'll be rejected. So now the, At at Monogram, they take the peripheral blood mononuclear cells, they take out the cellular DNA, they amplify it, sequence it, and then provide a report based on that process. Now it's just one tube of blood with a certain number of peripheral blood mononuclear cells present in it. And it's a whole blood sample, as I mentioned, can be done in persons who are suppressed. And if you actually have patients who have kept all of their uh, RNA resistance tests or you happen to have them in your clinical records and you compare them to the results from this archived DNA resistance test, it's fairly, fairly good correlation. But the limiting factor in the assay's sensitivity is the number of copies of HIV DNA that are actually sampled in that tube of blood. And that's all that they have available to them to assess all of the prior changes in virus that may have occurred over the years someone's been on therapy. Most samples that monogram gets have fewer than 10 different DNA segments that they get from those peripheral blood mononuclear cells of all the many bits of DNA that have been generated through resistance one after the other, you only get a fraction of them. And they're probably proportionate to how long someone was not suppressed and what the prevalence of the mutation was in the circulating virus at the time. There may be other factors that influence the presence or absence of this. So what you get may be. Important information for you to decide what might not work, but it's not true necessarily that not finding something is evidence that that is not there. It probably increases the likelihood that the changes that you're worried about didn't happen, but it doesn't give you complete certainty. And also, there's occasionally problems with getting unexpected resistance mutations that don't seem to follow from the prior treatment history. Are those real, or is that just a bit of DNA that got stored that you are put into your sequencer? There have been attempts to correlate the two, the accumulated RNA resistance tests with the DNA archive resistance test. Here's one such study, 169 patients with the undetectable viral load had DNA resistance archive tests. And these patients had their prior RNA resistance tests. On average, there were four per patient. And the median number of mutations in the cumulative RNA resistance tests was always more than was seen in the DNA archive test. So it's not unlikely that there will be some mutations that are not seen, and perhaps even more Distressing, I guess, is that some drugs, the presence of resistance to the drug was found only in the RNA, the cumulative RNA resistance test that was true in 63 percent of instances with NRTI resistance, 47 percent for NRA, and 50 percent in PI. So here's our patient's result. This is the interpretation. And we find that there's quite a bit of nucleoside resistance. Uh, identified. There's clearly NNRTI resistance. The integrase inhibitors. There's one mutation listed here, which I think is a compensatory or secondary mutation. And there's a fair amount of protease inhibitor resistance. So this and this is remember this is this is there. But could there even be more there than this? So I would say in this patient we were helped by the archived DNA resistance test, because I think it probably dissuades us from using things that differ substantially from that which he's on now, which has proven to be successful with him. And in fact, it was uh, clear that switching to a single tablet, it was not clear that that was a safe thing to do. We had him focus on the, OK, if you wait a little longer, there's probably going to be a one-pill regimen that will be what you're on now. And his regimen was not simplified. Joe, do you want to comment? Or Eric, or anyone want to comment I was on just
6: this? I think before I would have ordered I have not been a fan of the test or how to use it. But before I would have ordered it, the question would have been, if I didn't see nucleoside resistance, would I feel comfortable switching this person to nukes and in an integrase inhibitor? And my answer would have been no. So the fact that we saw it is great. And if I had to convince the patient that I was right, it's easy. But if we hadn't seen it, I still wouldn't have been comfortable doing it, so, so I wouldn't have ordered yeah. the so test. The, so,
1: irrespective of the results of the test, you would not have felt comfortable right. doing anything other than telling him to wait for the P. I Yeah, I
6: mean, we could give him, you know, Darunavir that and get him down to two pills with the hope of one in the near future. Right. But that's okay. what I, I would have pushed for. Jess?
5: Um, so, I wouldn't have ordered the test because I think you had all the information you needed from his history. Which is that he's been on everything and he's never taken anything so he's going to be resistant to everything and you got that same information from the expensive test um obviously i mean basically if you see a resistance mutation you're happy and if you don't see it you're not sure it's not there so if i'd seen less than that i still wouldn't have i wouldn't have believed it i would have gone with his history and and i would have loved to have gotten some records but i will also just say this he is currently undetectable which is great. So it means that the darunavir is doing all the, whole, the the heavy lifting here, and he's basically undetectable on a single drug, and his nukes are just hanging out. Um, Although we, his
1: resistance data, if you believe it, showed that tenofovir was still active.
5: I don't remember because I didn't memorize yeah, that it, picture, but. Um, uh, but he's doing great, which is actually kind of amazing. I mean, that's actually more important than any of this is that he's doing really well. So I guess my question for some smarty pants up here who know the data better than I do is why not switch him to Triumec? Why not switch him to dolutegravir? It's, I mean, my understanding is it's a, it's a pretty big drug with a, that can handle people who have a lot of resistance mutations and it does a lot of heavy lifting just like Darunavir.
1: Well, I can tell you, my my sort of idea is that um, I, I am, as you were, sort of surprised that he's actually been undetectable for a couple of years. Down, I think that's attributable more to adherence than any, anything else. Um, my my bias in switching is unless there's a reason to switch that's more than convenience. So someone is on a drug that's causing some meaningful side effects or, or they have to go on to hepatitis C therapy and there's this drug-drug interaction that's going to be a problem. My bias is not to switch for switching's sake unless it's clear to me that there's a pathway. And in this guy I'm not at all clear. Now I think, if, honestly, if he, took, if he got triumic and he took it every day, I think dolutegravir is a good enough drug that he would probably stay suppressed. It's easier to keep someone suppressed than it is to achieve suppression when somebody's got a replicating virus. But I'm, I'm sort of like, you've done this pretty well for a couple of years. And the only reason that I can see that he wants to switch is his, he has heard the word that he might be able to be on one pill.
2: That, that's a super, super high risk maneuver, I think, to go to Triumec, and and again, you know, the, the remember the thing to remember about Bacavir and Tanavir is the, the impact of 184V on those two medicines, right? Because right? uh, 184V increases the resistance to Bacavir, decreases the Tanavir. So I, I think it's a really high risk proposition to go to to Triumec in this particular patient. Whether you know, TAF FTC dolutegravir or or uh, TDF FTC dolutegravir would also be sufficient for this guy. I think is a, it's a, is a different question and and plausible, but I think that the risk benefit there is still pretty high because um, we just don't have the same experience as we have with the boosted PI.
1: Audience, sir, did you have a question? Anna?
7: Maybe he's not infected.
1: Uh, well, that's not impossible, although his CD4 count is kind Wait, of But fun- You just funky. did an
2: HIV DNA test on him, right? Yeah, that's true. If you you
1: get a DNA archive result, then you can't have that unless you've had virus circulating and replicating. So good good point. Let's get to the last case. And partly it's important because the question that appears at the end to see if you've gained knowledge, thanks to us, is part of case four. It's a 24-year-old woman who is pregnant. And in her first visit, After learning she's pregnant to a health provider, she's screened for HIV and is found to be HIV infected. She has no meaningful prior problems, no significant medical history. This is the first time she's been pregnant. Her exam is unremarkable in the fact that she's about 20 weeks pregnant, as near as can be um, assessed. She has initial HIV labs uh, that are sent, her CD4 count and viral load. And an HIV genotype is sent. You know that in your lab, in your practice, the viral load and CD4 count will be back in just a few days. But the resistance test takes at least a week, sometimes two weeks. A holiday weekend is coming up, so there's going to be a little bit of a delay. She's now that she's learned about HIV and she's gone on the internet, she's worried about her baby. she said, "I got to start treatment. It's time to start treatment." So in this 24-year-old pregnant woman with newly diagnosed HIV, would you include an integrase? It's a separate test. Remember, the standard resistance test does protease and uh, uh, reverse transcriptase. and You have to order a separate uh, type of test to get the integrase gene sequenced as well. Would you order that as part of your initial HIV screening laboratory? So let's vote on that. I was born. In a little oh. Okay. So, wow. <laughs> Holy moly. So, I, I'm, I'm going to term, term these the haves and these the have-nots. Because to get Integrase, you have to have more money available to you. <coughs> and the yield from Integrase, baseline resistance testing, looking for transmitted resistance, at least so far, is not very great. Here's some... Data from treatment naive studies that showed that over these uh, intervals of time, the proportion of pretreatment uh, genotypes that showed resistance went up for our older drugs, but for integrase, it remained vanishingly low. And uh, closer to home, a presentation from last year's ICAC looked at the sites in the AIDS Healthcare Foundation clinics, analyzed 339 treatment-naive genotypes that were sent. uh, The prevalence of resistance overall was 25%, Mm -hmm. kind of distressing, got as high as 30% in 2014, dropped some in 2015, but was concentrated in NNRTIs, was also present in nukes and PIs. None. No transmitted integrase resistance. That's not to say it will not happen, it's not to say it is not happening, but it's an extraordinarily infrequent event, and uh, this has been a topic that I think the guidelines panel has considered, and they're, as a matter of routine, they're not going to include integrase as necessary for pretreatment resistance testing. Although if you have the resources and want to do it, it certainly would help to be a sentinel site and perhaps d- describe an epidemiology that may be different in your neighborhood. But so far, that's not been a huge issue. OK, so now we're, the genotype is out. The, the lady says, I really want to get on therapy. I'm so afraid my baby is going to get HIV from me. Would you wait for the genotype to return, starter on a PI-based, <coughs> an integrase based or an NNRTI-based regimen? Let's vote. <laughs> All right, let's see what we got here. All right, well, again, we have great diversity of opinion. And uh, the number one uh, selection is to start an integrase-based regimen, then second PI, uh, the third is to wait for the genotype, and then a small sedan and RTI-based regimen. So let's take a look here. So, uh, again, the interest of time, I'm going to have the panel chime in more towards the end. So the guidelines for the management of antiretroviral drugs in HIV-infected pregnant women were updated uh, in August of 2015. And they attempted to address this. First they said all pregnant women with HIV should be on combination therapy and irrespective of CD4 and viral load. And this was A, which is the strongest possible recommendation. And it was one. And it was based on randomized controlled trials. So that's the highest level of recommendation. But it also says antiretroviral drug resistance testing should be done. However, in pregnant women not already receiving antiretroviral therapy, so a woman who's known to be HIV positive is on therapy. That's one category. But here's a new diagnosis. Consideration should be given to initiating combination antiretroviral therapy before results of drug resistance testing are available, because earlier viral suppression has been associated with a lower risk of transmission. If the resi- when the resistance tests come back, then you can adjust as need be. And this is a moderately strong recommendation, mostly based on expert opinion. Now, When they go to the next part of the guidelines where it says, what are the recommended regimens as of August 6, 2015, in HIV-infected women, the following are listed. For the nucleoside backbone, abacavir 3TC, TDF with either FTC or 3TC, or AZT 3TC. A PI is one option using atazanavir, ritonavir, or darunavir, ritonavir, plus one of these preferred backbones. An NNRTI-based regimen, you know, for years, the test question we always got right was don't use efavarins in pregnancy. The preferred NNRTI reg- regimen is efavarins plus a 2NRTI background, Concern because of birth defects seen in primate study. Risk in humans is unclear. The British guidelines actually added efavirenz earlier than the US did. Postpartum contraception must be ensured because really the efavirenz biggest risk is during the time uh, early uh, after conception. Preferred regimen in women who require co-administration of drugs with significant interactions with PIs, or the convenience of a co-formulated single-tablet regimen, and the only listed integrase is raltegravir. In fact, whoops, That's your last slide. I pushed to see the next slide, and it told me I'm too close to the end, so I can't do it. Maybe
5: hmm.
1: yeah, okay. no, I can go back, okay. Now I push.
5: That's your last slide.
1: That's bottom. my last slide? Okay, I thought I had a couple other slides. So uh, let me ask the panel, in our particular patient whose genotype is still not back, who's anxious to get on antiretroviral therapy, what do you
2: think our best option is? Joe? Um, Yeah, I I think it's really critical. Oh, sorry, wrong Joe. Go ahead.
4: Uh As long as I've known you, Joe, you're always like that.
2: I know I really, I
4: need to control myself. No, the only other thing I'd like to add before I answer that question is if I was reasonably certain the source of her HIV infection, if she had a a long-term partner and that person was known to be highly experienced and have significant resistance, that might influence me to wait that one to two weeks. I think at 20 weeks, 22 weeks, waiting one to two weeks in that scenario would be fine. If if she was coming in in labor, uh, it would be a different issue and I'd go ahead and treat. As far as an integrase or a, a protea, boosted protease inhibitor, more experience with the boosted protease inhibitors, but I would be comfortable with either one.
2: Okay, I like that answer. Uh, the other Joe, yeah, I would just say that you know that I might even do an integrase resistance test on this woman, just because I mean you know again the you know by the time we learn that the CDC is seeing integrase resistance, um, you know this is kind of a high risk situation. So even if it's 0.5 percent or something, you know. It, the the cost is is not. It's huge. modest. It's relatively modest. So I would consider that, and I I agree. I I I think you know, building establishing trust with the woman is critical here because you want her to really be uh, in your clinic and and staying with you. So I would I would again I think that was great smart by Joe. I would, I didn't think of that to to get the history on a potential partner. But but I, I would feel comfortable starting before the resistance. And what would
1: you start, Joe?
2: I would probably start with a boosted PI based on the. The, the accumulated data and experience, understanding that as she moves into her, you know, later, uh, uh, th- there may be issues with nausea and, and, and we may have to modify. But that's
3: probably what I would do. Gary, can I ask your input? You know, what's interesting about the case is that I would want to know, did she come into pregnancy positive? Or was her pregnancy and her HIV seroconversion around the same time? If she sort of described a viral syndrome around the time that she thought she might have conceived, I might just pull the trigger and not wait for a resistance test. Um, And it's hard to know whether you'd put her on a boosted PI like darunavir, or go with something as potent as dolutegravir. But you want to throw the kitchen sink at her if you think she got, you know, um, infected at the same time around conception.
1: So dolutegravir may turn out to be a really good drug during pregnancy, but it's not part of the indicated list now. The data they have is on Raltegravir. And there was some data presented, I think at CROI, looking at the volume of distribution and dalutegravir and raising some concerns about what the proper dosing might be. So I think dalutegravir before it gets on that list, probably has a, a, a lot more studies to be yeah. completed.
3: And that brings up the other good point about the PIs, you can do a level. You know, we've done that before in pregnant women where we had to add doses where we're using Kaletra because the lopinavir levels weren't high enough. So maybe that would, you know, you'd lean a little bit towards the PI regimen because you have some drug therapeutic monitoring to do there that's more commercially available. And
1: Jess, do you want to close out the comment as the only woman on the panel? Yes, is like, that makes you me to an expert. Not a talk about pregnant woman?
5: Well, I, I used to be an expert, but I've been, I haven't done this in three years, which makes me completely out of date. But um, raltegravir is twice a day. I'm, patients have a hard time with that. Favarin has so many psych side effects and um, you know, low barrier to resistance. I just don't use it that much in anybody anymore. Um, I would go with a boosted PI. There's just so much accumulated experience in pregnancy. And then, Eric, I'll let you finish your...
4: I'm going to, I'm going to do a Joe and jump in. Okay. Um, just another thing on the efavirenz. Any, any woman who's about to be up four or five times a night uh, for the next couple of years, I wouldn't give them efavirenz.
1: <laughs> Touche. <laughs>
8: they, Hi, I'm a clinical pharmacist. I think you guys should also ask a pharmacist to come up there um, for drug-drug interaction purposes in. Um, first of all, in pregnancy, you also need to give darunavir twice a day with ritonavir twice a day. So that is really um, maybe a deal breaker for this woman. That, and that's based upon PK outcomes, not necessarily viral logical uh, um, breakthrough outcomes. And you also need to in, in, um, increase your atazanavir dose to 400 a di- um, once a day with ritonavir. So I think um, part of it all, yes, absolutely. With what is she willing to take? Is she is bid going to be a deal breaker over Q day, and increasing doses of the appropriate um, PIs? But I and I totally vote for treating her right away.
1: Uh, Take that, Eric. What (laughs) Uh, (laughs) excellent points. Uh, uh, The.
6: the, the only comment that I would make too, just uh, the important caveat: the Favarin's indication is for um, after eight weeks of pregnancy. Um, I believe it still is. Yeah, and that if they come, if they're on it, and they're all, and they're found to be pregnant while they're on it, it's, the feeling is that usually it's after five to six weeks, and that's when most neural tube development. Right. That's my understanding of the right. most recent guidelines. Right. Now we rarely identify people pregnant before eight weeks, right. so it's probably not an issue. But.
9: Um, So I might be different because I I tend to be a little more aggressive with um, pregnant patients. And uh, so if she's wanting to start, I don't have a genotype. I'm still going to start her anyways, and I will talk to her about what she's willing to do. But I would actually start with a boosted PI and do raltegravir. Ah. And then you can just peel back. Depending on like what's going on with the genotype shows and do
1: you also give one of the nucleoside pairings? Oh, for sure. Or you give all through yeah a four drug regimen.
9: Yeah, and then um, I would see how she tolerates it, what the genotype shows, and also I mean what I like about the raltegravir is it'll bring down the viral load fairly right. quickly, yep. which is what we want. So. Right.
1: Well, there's all manner of options. Gary, so please. So can I make just
3: one plug? Is that yeah. in this area, we're really fortunate to have Deb Cohn and our group from BayPAC. And so the three times we've dealt with this at our medical center, we've always had um, that group helping us from UCSF, and we're very grateful for that in this community. It's been great for the North Bay Area. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a
1: tough area because it's so hard to do clinical trials in pregnant women, and we end up with cohort studies and so on. The good news is that the frequency of transmission, vertical transmission, has dropped so dramatically with the application of antiretroviral therapy. But knowing exactly what the right thing to do, what the PK and PD tells us about dosing, does that dosing need change in the third trimester relative to the first or second trimester? Uh, I think are all uh, potential challenges to doing it right,
5: yes? And just don't forget about the perinatal HIV hotline, which is a 24-hour call in line for clinicians to ask any question that you like about your pregnant HIV-infected patients and Deb Cohen work, helps with that line too. So you have access to 24-hour advice about this. Okay. Any other uh, comments, questions
1: about any of the cases or any of the information we've talked about? It's time for lunch, so the questions tend to diminish, but not entirely. We still have four minutes of question time available, so please.
9: So not a question, but just on the pregnancy thing, just another plug for the ARV registry. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've learned a lot from that. Actually, is one of the major reasons why a sovereigns moved off of the prohibited list, because it's more Pregnancy outcomes were accumulated in the antiretroviral pregnancy registry. The association of efavirenz with uh, birth defects turned out to be much lower than anticipated. And as Eric mentioned, they're mostly neural tube associations that occur very early in pregnancy. So being able to add efavirenz, although not many of us like that drug so much anymore, but it's certainly an option now in pregnancy as well. Okay. Please.
4: I just have a question. I think most people are doing a really good job of screening women when they present as pregnant for HIV, but I'm wondering um, how does everyone think they're doing with non-pregnant, sexually active women? And the reason I ask the question is I just spent a year in Malaysia, and and we had over a dozen people in a year present to our ID service who came in pregnant, uh, HIV-infected, and really tragic. Um, Are people doing a better job here? In in terms of... Routine Doing HIV routine testing HIV sexually screening. active women who are not yet pregnant, or
1: everyone now, if you actually follow the CDC guidelines. I I I I think that's a great question.
4: Maybe we just don't have people treating that young age group in
1: here. I can sometimes aren't in care regularly. Don't have a need to see a doctor, but. Please.
7: Um, we had one baby born in the Bay Area in December, and that baby's mother made at least five visits to clinics between July and December and never once had her blood drawn for an HIV test. Wow. I can't say that we can blame the medical system because this is a woman who never went to the same place twice, and she may not have been willing to get her blood drawn. At one of those visits, she had a urine test that was positive for drugs and I think she had a history that put her at risk for being in trouble for having drugs in her system. Um, But it was a major tragedy in our area. We've gone for for almost 10 years without a perinatally infected baby in the Bay Area. So this was the first one born in December. And as will happen with all the babies who are born infected now they're almost always gonna be born to mothers who are in a very difficult social situation, poorly supported, very little um, in the way of medical care, very little in the way of social support, um, and every possible social consequence of being uh, in this woman's situation happened with this family. The courts were involved, getting consents to do things, foster parents, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. So, do you, do you advocate in
1: pregnant women first visit to the health care system that they get a point of care rapid test done, not just a sample of blood drawn?
7: I'm probably the only pediatrician in the audience who doesn't see the pregnant women at the point of care, so I can't tell you that from firsthand experience. But I think if any one of those five sites had bothered to test her, she told us. That she went to every site telling them that in May I had a sexual relationship with a man who told me he was HIV infected. Wow. Whether, in fact, that's the story, I don't know, but she got finally tested on the morning that she delivered. Her viral load was 30,000, her baby's viral load was 300,000.
1: Well, on that, Grim note. (laughs) It's uh, time for lunch. Dr. Schooley's here to take my place. And I finished with 19 seconds to spare. All right. Thank you very
0: much, Chuck. And thanks for the great uh, job on both uh, panelists.